The first thing that we have to put on the table here is this misconception that mindfulness is the same as meditation. It's not. Mindfulness is a state of being fully aware of what is happening and of being fully aware of all the data in front of you and then responding appropriately. So mindfulness mean, doesn't mean as a state being nice. It doesn't mean being friendly because being aware of the data in front of me and then choosing how to respond rather than responding based on impulse is different from, it might involve me being aggressive if I have to be aggressive because it's appropriate in that situation to respond in that way. This is The Strategy Behind with Adam Cox. In this episode, we explore the strategy behind the mindful organization, how mindfulness as a team sport can positively impact organizational performance with Dr. Jutta Tobias Mortlock. PhD in psychology from Washington State University, holds a psychotherapeutic counselling qualification of the University of Cambridge, is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, co-founder of the Centre of Excellence in Mindfulness Research and a co-founder of the Mindful Business, an organisation that enables executives and their teams to build a competitive advantage by developing mindfulness in the workplace. Advisor to UK think tank The Mindfulness Initiative, senior lecturer at City University of London, and has been featured in the Financial Times, BBC World Service, and many other pieces of literature. Dr. Jutta Tobias Motlock. Jutta, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. What a joy <laughs> to be here. Indeed, indeed. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, particularly in relation to a lot of the work that you've been doing from a psychology perspective in its relationship to business, what it means to leaders, what it means to organizations who are trying to move forward, expand, grow, all the good stuff. But I'm going to start at the absolute very beginning. What drew you to this work in relation to psychology in particular, organizational psychology and mindfulness? Hmm. So I wish I had a simple answer for this as you were kind of introducing me. I mean, gosh, there's a lot of questions here and there's no real answers. But, I but isn't think, that the basis of psychology? Yeah, and it's the basis of finding out stuff. It's the basis of science and that's why science is actually Am I allowed to say sexy here? Like science is sexy and maybe that's my mission really to bring the sex appeal into science. <laughs> um, but in a good way because, um, I was a consultant for a long time and, or for eight years, mm -hmm. loved it, loved helping problems, um, for organizations. And the more I worked with organizations, the more I realized that People issues are at the heart of a lot of business problems, but I didn't fully understand what was going on between people or even within people. And I, there was a very smart man I worked for at one of the consultancies I've worked at and who asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I want to have your job. And he <laughs> was head of the people practice of, of some London branch of his, of this big uh, firm. And he said, you need to do two things um, if you want to have my job later on. You need to get a title. And so he meant the PhD, so to impress people, especially for a woman. 
Um, and he also said, you need to go back to school and understand people. And so I went back to do a PhD in, in social psychology. And that's when I got really excited by science in its ability to help business. And mm. so I didn't really understand what like theories are. Like, what's a theory? Why would I care about a theory? But theories are helpful in getting us to make sense of the reality and the messiness of business that we have in front of ourselves. And that's why my job now is to help create with people like you in business with in the real world answers for why conflicts at work tend to become about people conflicts, even though we're just dealing with tasks, we're mm. just dealing with problems. Why do we let it out on other people when all we have to do is actually solve a problem in an operation somewhere and what can we do about it? Yeah. Interesting when you talk about kind of people being at the heart, how much of the psychology aspect of talent in an organization is misdiagnosed as, oh, it's just the culture? Mm. And I think I'm going to raise you one mm -hmm. when people say it's just the culture or it's just the people. Um, many initiatives in organizational development or in training focus on the skill of the employee or the skill of the manager or the skill of the leader. And they might even throw in a bit of motivational uh, training. You know, maybe they are not smart enough. Maybe they're not skilled enough. So let's, let's give them a training program, but maybe also they're not motivated enough. And mm -hmm. so let's do a bit of motivational coaching. But what is consistently overlooked and where the science is becoming really interesting is what is the opportunity for somebody to express a behavior? What is the culture mm -hmm. about that either enables or hinders people? And it all interacts with an individual's skill and with their ability and their mot motivation. But it's a lot to do with me in my relationship with myself and me in my relationship to you and me in relationship to the culture. So it becomes much more complex than our brains want to understand. And that's why people simplify and mm. say it's the culture or it's he is just not smart enough. I'm smarter than him. <laughs> if I were in his job, I would get it right. Yeah, of course, wouldn't we all? But it's also particularly over the last five, ten years, I've seen this trend of cultural change initiatives. We will mm -hmm. change the organization's DNA, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. The posters will go up across across the organization's mm -hmm. kind of you know, cubicles and ah. all of these things will happen. And most cultural change initiatives, at least what I've seen in my career, are five to seven-year exercises. Mm -hmm. Usually there is a change of leadership in that time and then everything goes by the wayside because the new leader, he or she wishes to make a, you know, a stamp on the organization, wants to move things forward in a different direction, whatever it happens to be. And then the culture is kind of positively reinforced to stay the way it's always been. Mm -hmm. How much of those sort of things, you know, those cultural change pushes kind of overshoot or totally miss the point of kind of psychology in relation to the individual and actually not looking at it through those kind of clinical eyes? I think the answer is, and that's how I'm framing the work that I'm doing to find out what makes, what helps people change their behavior in a way that promotes well-being and sustainable performance, mm -hmm. um, is we need to look at it 
as, and I, I'm literally talking about this with this government department that I'm working with as a multi-layered cake. So you can't just look at the culture as this theoretical, um, superordinate concept that exists independent of us. And you can't just look at the individuals as units of agents of doing something. You have to look at both things together. And between an individual and an organization, there's always another layer. There's a third layer of the cake, which is the interpersonal, the relational the aspect that actually in my, in the data that I'm collecting is almost the thing that is most important in driving behavior and driving functional or dysfunctional behavior. And so that's about the people that I'm with in any situation most drive how I behave. So let's, mm. you're thinking and I, and I like that. Yeah. So let's make that concrete. So right now you and I are in this interview together mm -hmm. and my behavior is strongly shaped by me interfacing with you. Yeah. When we leave this room, your and my behavior will get strongly shaped by the next person we get in contact with and how comfortable we feel with them, how competent we feel with them, what the norms are that we have almost at a micro level mm -hmm. determined with each other. And so I think even when you think about social networks, the way we present ourselves in social networks depends on which social network we actually even log on to, LinkedIn, Instagram. My Instagram and my Twitter account are completely different because almost the, the microculture of the people I want to engage with is different. And so I am a different person. Mm. How much of that then leads to identity? At least, you mm -hmm. know, particularly within organizations, there's this kind of idea where, you know, organizations are little more than collections of people. When you look at the individual person, it comes down to the identity and the identity shapes the behavior. Does the identity of the individual really drive, for example, your take on your, your, your Instagram and your Twitter are two very different, different things? Mm -hmm. Is that shaped primarily because it's who you are? Or is it shaped by the people you wish to engage with? I think it's both. And I think if we, I think identity is super important and it applies to an individual. It applies to a group, mm -hmm. right? It applies to an organization. An organization has an identity and it, an identity is nothing more than the things we value. So the things that we think are right or wrong, the things that we think are true or false. So the causal maps. So if I do a, then B happens. So and those are beliefs. They're mm -hmm. not facts, but, and the things that are almost the, the norms or the rules of how I engage with you. Like, um, I should do this. Oh, it's frowned upon if I do that. And so that shapes my attitudes and my behavior in an, in an, uh, in a situation. And maybe it's useful to bring in some mindfulness here. Mm. And maybe sprinkle some, like, why the hell are we talking about this? We're talking yeah. about this because we're, because this, what you and I are interested in right now is talking about mindfulness and how it relates to helping people, helping myself be the person I want to be and do what I want to do. And so I'm interested in understanding behavior, tick, right? Yeah. I'm interested in understanding behavior in organizations. 
tick. And we're already saying this is a bit more complicated than just understanding individual behavior because in an organization, I become a different person because the organization dictates to a certain extent what I do. And mindfulness in its aspiration is this metacognitive capability that allows me, like meta means thinking about, like met, uh, like in itself. So metacognition means thinking about thinking. So the aspiration of mindfulness training and practice is to get us to think about what we're doing before we're doing it, ideally, or even after what we've done to reflect and maybe learn something so mm. that next time we can do it better. And what I'm finding in the more I look into mindfulness research, the more I do mindfulness research, the more I realize that mindfulness practice and training for the individual is only one layer of the cake of what mindfulness in its aspiration is trying to do to get us to put a wedge between the stuff that's in front of us and thinking, oops, am I going to go into answer A or answer B, path A or path B, and then act. Mm -hmm. And that effect, that's determined by how aware you are of how mindful you are of how you and I work together, how you work with yourself and how I work with myself. So this, this is a multi-layered kind of endeavor. Mm -hmm. And with the recent ish, rise of the mindfulness industry like mm. there's now literature and apps yeah. and consultancies mm. and it's become i wouldn't say it's caught in the hype cycle mm -hmm. but in recent times you know there's more organizations that are focusing on this how much of this is kind of baked on the trend or voodoo science versus actually has has the clinical kind of work to actually lead to the benefits that you're starting to allude to mm -hmm. um so that's why here at City University, we've founded this Center for Excellence in Mindfulness Research, because what we're saying is in the last 10 years or so, mindfulness has become popular because of a really solid body of evidence in the clinical and mental health world, where mindfulness training focused on individual contemplative meditative practices really help people change their behavior. And this is people who have three things going for them. They are people who are really, who've tried lots of other things and they have failed. So they have mental or physical health conditions that are really bad. And so they're motivated to change their behavior. So thinking about motivation, ability and opportunity, they definitely have the motivation. So helping them to put a wedge between what the world presents to them and how they respond is a skills level training. So Helping people to meditate gets the skills involved in the ability to actually to pause and think about what they're doing before they're then acting. That's really useful. But then that, that body of knowledge has now been moved into organizations. So there's an industry of mindfulness training organizations, mindfulness consultancies that are saying we can put this knowledge into organizations. And they are ignoring the context and they're ignoring the culture of the organization because what we're now finding and what more and more scientific papers and management uh, journals are publishing is that mindfulness at work, as the FT said, and I think in January, is not what it's cracked up to be. Mm. And that's because people being motivated to practice 
thinking about what they're doing before they're doing it, being able to reflect and being contemplative is not enough to give them the opportunity and change the culture so that people become caring about themselves, caring or maybe even, dare I say, compassionate about other people and curious about how they can learn from a situation rather than doing what they're always doing. And it's interesting, the caring about yourself component, many people would say is probably the hardest. You know, it's easy yeah. to throw yourself under the bus for the common good of mm. the project, the objective, the team, the numbers, whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. How do you find people even approach that, particularly in an organizational context where many people see their worth in relation to their remuneration and their bonuses and you know their title, mm-hmm. but not necessarily in the way that they go about how they do what they do. Yeah. So I only realized what the answer to this is when I started to do research in the armed forces in the UK. And so we basically uh, were given the brief to examine how mindfulness can help the military of the future you know, get ready for a, a world in, where in the future, the world of work, the world of warfare, and the world of the work is dramatically transformed. And so we had a, an opportunity to look into how mindfulness can have strategic benefits. And we initially thought, you know, what is currently available on the market, as it were, training individuals in the armed forces to become caring about themselves, to become compassionate with themselves, might be useful. But then we looked at another whole other body of literature that talks about mindful organizations. And mindful organizations are highly reliable. And they are organizations where difficult topics get discussed freely, where people are uh, respectful of other individuals independent of their rank or their their expertise, and where people are open-minded at all levels. And we then realized when we brought um, this classic mindfulness training of promoting individual compassion to high-performing armed forces, you know, leaders, as well as people who are typically, you know, a bit of an alpha male, competitive, telling them the message that they should be compassionate to themselves is completely countercultural, especially in a culture where self-sacrifice and dedication is rewarded mm. and actively promoted. And so that's when we started to bring in Hmm. The really cool science on neurobiology, on social neurobiology. And we basically trained individuals to start caring about each other and we rewarded them for it so that almost with a, in a, in a roundabout way, they might feel what it feels like to be caring and then indirectly start to care about themselves by starting to proactively care about other people. So what we're talking about here is almost creating an environment that is conducive to that change in oneself to take place. Because ultimately you can change the environment, you can change the talent, or you can change the process. The talent's the one you're working with. Mm -hmm. You're playing with the process of how to be mindful. And I've I've heard the phrase, you know, mindfulness is a team sport. And By doing that, you're influencing the environment, which then goes back into the talent. So you look at those three things and how they kind of feed into each other. And how is, again, doing something like this in relation to the military is a great example. What sort of impact does this actually uh, actually yield? Yeah. And so so I absolutely uh, had to rethink 
how I framed the mindfulness training. And it was absolutely not appropriate to frame this mindfulness training as, you know, compassion training, pink and fluffy self-care training. And so I started to realize um, also by watching what happened when teams are taught not to care about themselves, but to care about each other in a really proactive, you know, explicit way. They, in the moments of, you know, stressful performance challenges, actually applied the skills that we had trained them, both in terms of mindfulness meditation, breathing techniques, relaxation techniques, but also other mindfulness techniques that allow people to put a wedge between what's happening and how they respond, such as conflict resolution skills, like questioning techniques, only if we had approached mindfulness as a team sport. And that's why I'm now arguing that mindfulness cannot be an individual self-focused sport. That's not in almost in the the intent of mindfulness is never to be inward looking. It's to be outward looking to be to change the world that's actually what the buddhist principle of mindfulness is all about anyway but you cannot tackle it directly especially not in high performance highly striving context where people dismiss the notion that maybe something's wrong with me or maybe uh, i need to take care of myself better hell no i i'm actually going to have to work harder yeah and and that's also this knowledge we also realize from an automatic response to stress level we are we're starting to understand so there's this is where the social neurobiology stuff comes in which is really sexy mm. can you give us a practical example of what that team mindfulness actually looks like because then i can start to translate it into the workplace and what that actually looks like on the ground perfect so if you think about you know classic mindfulness training that's offered in clinical mental health settings is effectively and it's very well researched it's called mindfulness-based stress reduction Mm -hmm. or mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And it's all about how I work, how I live in response to stress, in response to difficult situations. Moving this into the business means we are effectively managing challenges. We're managing difficult situations. We're managing an increasingly volatile, ambiguous, mm -hmm, you, know, mm -hmm. you know, uncertain environment. Standard crisis VUCA kind of stuff, yeah. right? But so effectively, team mindfulness is collective stress management. And so that means collectively, what do we do when the responsibility for managing stress is not uh, an individual endeavor, but you are just as responsible for helping me manage my stress as I am responsible for you not getting freaked out by when things start to get stressful for you. And what does this mean concretely from an intervention perspective, which is what we're starting to generate more data on? We basically break down how people start to almost become more friendly with each other in the face of challenge. And, and a very easy way to do this is to get people to start talking about the things that might be difficult for them, the things that they expect from others in a team when they're starting to feel stress. So this is about anticipating stress. So it's like f raising the flag. To yeah. Be like, hey, I'm starting to feel a pinch here, and then others will lean into support. Yeah, but you can't do this in the moment of stress. You have to almost change the microculture of the team mm -hmm. to start to be able to talk about things before 
the proverbial stuff hits the fan. But is that so not seen as a sign of weakness, particularly in the example of the alpha male in, in the military? Like, how does that go down to be like, hey, I think I might have a problem well, with this? Uh, we've basically, we've um, practiced this. We've got, we've got data on it and we've tried it out. And so the, we were leaning on this very cool research by Harvard. Always nice to lean on research by Harvard. So, um, a hugely successful operations management scholar called Amy Edmondson at Harvard says, helping teams feel psychological safe with each other is not only um, good for the individual team members so that they will feel more trusted, more respected, but it's also good for the bottom line. Because in today's business, in today's business world, um, we don't know where the answers to our complex, ambiguous, uncertain problems come from. So having team members engage with each other at all times creates psychological safety, right? So mm -hmm. being able to speak up whenever I feel that something might be amiss, some idea I have might be useful, that creates a highly functioning team. But breaking that down into stress management means concretely how do you move how do you get there yeah you create a norm where you say we are dedicated we're sending, spending dedicated time on sharing with each other what happens to me when i'm stressed because mm -hmm. it starts to shift the culture about what's acceptable to be talked about from a um we only talk about good things we only talk about positive things to actually utah sometimes crumbles and that means, and if Adam listens to Utah, he might start to develop some compassion mm. and some caring because he sees more of the humanity in Utah than he saw before. And it's really difficult to see somebody as an, as an enemy when you actually know them and when you know why. For example, they talk more loudly, which is what I do when I'm stressed. Mm -hmm. So we are... We're literally training people to become good at spotting the stress in others. That's what mindfulness as a team sport is about. And then we've found out that in the moment of actually challenge and stress, they actually apply the techniques and they perform better because collectively they become responsible for not letting anyone be left behind. Does these sort of activities and to kind of foster this behavior in an organization, does it need to be leadership blessed or led from the top or is it something mm -hmm. that you can actually kind of park down in the organization and kind of have it run as a remote kind yeah. of activity and the answer is absolutely it has to be blessing from the top has to be so it's top down absolutely has to be a top down initiative but it also has to um, come from the bottom up just like any change initiatives they have to not be just imposed on the people and they they are not powerful if they are just generated from the bottom up and that's why uh, the work that i'm doing in the armed forces in the uk is really helpful because i'm i'm now starting to be a known uh, what do you call it in english a known dog you know so mm. I'm, i go in and speak to all sorts of leadership circles and talk about the financial and the strategic benefits of approaching mindfulness as a strategic as a multi-level cake as a as a team sport and the leadership cadre in the armed forces has a very long breath of attention anyway. They are, you know, they are strategic thinkers. They have to be. And they are starting to buy into the data that suggests putting in a mindfulness meditation training course into organizations doesn't seem to return a lot of, um, uh, has not a lot of return, especially over the medium and long term. There's no data of 
these individual focused mindfulness initiatives and organizations to actually sustain because the culture always creeps back in to take mindfulness as the lowest priority. And so the leadership cadre in the armed forces in the UK is starting to take mindfulness seriously and as a strategic initiative. Mm. And so it has to be from uh, endorsed by, by leadership, but it also has to become part of the fabric of the organization. And that makes perfect sense because when you think about a leader embracing an initiative like this on traditional business assessment metrics it'd be like what the hell are you doing you know everyone go off on a meditation retreat and da 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 and again it'll be it'll be misconstrued as being like what is this this doesn't make sense this is not going to be good for the bottom line this isn't going to improve performance you know if i'm stressed at my desk and i get into a meditation pod and i think about my holiday for 15 minutes i'm going to come back i'm probably just going to continue thinking about my holiday and therefore not perform as well as I should. So therefore, mm-hmm. yeah. How, how does a leader then reconcile the trade-off of kind of the natural knee-jerk reaction of what something like this would actually potentially mean, you know, very consciously versus what the data is suggesting? Mm-hmm. The first thing that we have to put on the table here is this misconception that mindfulness is the same as meditation. It's not. Okay. Mindfulness is a state of being fully aware of what is happening and of being fully aware of all the data in front of you and then responding appropriately. So mindfulness mean, doesn't mean as a state being nice. It doesn't mean being friendly because being aware of the data in front of me and then choosing how to respond rather than responding based on impulse is different from, it might involve me being aggressive if I have to be aggressive, mm-hmm. right? It might me uh, being, you know, cruel to be kind because it's appropriate in that situation to, to respond in that way. Meditation is one of many avenues or practices or techniques to get into that state of mindfulness. Kind of like clearing, clearing the decks of all the clutter clearing of the life decks. and just yeah. going, okay, I need mm-hmm. mental capacity here to be mindful and yeah. be in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And it's an absolute misnomer that you always have to meditate in order to become mindful because hasn't it happened to you that when you uh, noted down for a week the decisions that you took or you know when you even looked at um, what you spent money on, that that act, that process increased your awareness of how you spend your money and mm. of how you actually make decisions. And that is a technique to increase your mindfulness. And that gives you a bit of input into next time being more aware, clearing the deck, being aware of what's going on and responding appropriately. And the, the really important um, piece of research that got me to see that this has, has legs is the work by this wonderful social neurobiologist called Stephen Porges. And he said, the way that our body responds to stress is precognitive. So that's much quicker than our cognition can ever come in. And mindfulness meditation is actually an advanced, very involved practice. So that means in mindfulness, you have to meditate consistently in order to see the benefits. And the, the early research of, you know, five minutes or 15 minutes of mindfulness meditation changing your brain there is changes in the brain, but these are not sustained if you don't keep practicing mindfulness meditation 
And this is where the role of these kind of mindfulness apps and these sort of things, is that trying to fill a gap or is that something else that kind of comes from the mindfulness industry just from a kind of well, spinning a dollar sort well, of mentality? Um, the data on mindfulness apps in there is actually very discouraging if they are not embedded in a culture that supports people taking a breather, people being measured in their approach. So mindfulness apps in organizations have by there's an increasing body of research that actually has even compared Andy Puddingcombe's Headspace app to a sham meditation narrated by Andy Puddingcombe, who's participated in the research and in a randomized control setting with several different groups of people, good scientific protocol, this research found that neither of these apps could lead to cognitive improvements in performance. And so that's really, that should really be demotivating leaders to invest more heavily in Headspace apps without thinking about mindfulness as a strategic initiative in your organization that helps you change the culture from a me culture to a we culture. Because again, as you know, and as, as we know, reading the Harvard Business Review, more mm. and more research is coming out saying that what drives performance in organizations is teams being well and doing well together, teams working well as teams. And so that means uh, it's less important who's in the team, how smart people are in the team, but how they work together, how the they relate to each other. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, and how much they care about each other. But this is, you know, we have to approach this indirectly. We can't say care about me. Yeah, we have to do caring. Yeah. And that's precisely it. It's, it's, yeah. it's the indirect approach yeah. because when you look at it front on, you're kind of like, oh, why would I do this? But then when you look at it from different angles, it starts to, it makes absolute common sense. You know, if you have a team that's more cohesive, has that kind of collective care, is pulling everyone through, when it's rewarded, has that honesty and is, and, and it's is rewarded performing to care. better, then yeah. why wouldn't you do it? Exactly. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Strategy Behind with Adam Cox. You mentioned kind of the the performance output of these teams that are more mindful. I just want to understand what that looks like. For example, if I'm an executive and I'm busy and someone has three minutes and they go, hey, look, boss, we need to do this. Mm-hmm. What sort of impact does these sort of initiatives actually outperform a team that doesn't do it? So the, the study that we've run that we just published is the first study that puts individual mindfulness meditation together with more socially or team-oriented mindfulness practices, such as how do you systematically create a team that manages stress collectively and breaking this down. So this is the first study that we are aware of that has turned this into an intervention and evaluated it scientifically. And we found that the team's that approached mindfulness as a team sport as a, or as a strategic endeavor that in effectively goes into the culture 
And culture means performance management, right? Culture mm -hmm. means resource management. Culture, culture means reward management. They perform better under stress. But we're only talking about a, you know, one small study in the armed forces with officer cadets. We need much more research. We need much more data. But Adam, more importantly, it's really important to understand that when we are under stress, our body automatically makes us less social unless we have a social system that where we feel safe to reach out and and engage in with other people so we we have to fight the culture of organizations that says when the work gets tough people typically work harder they shout louder they become more aggressive mm -hmm. and that's because at an automatic At a neurobiological level, we go into fight or flight, right? Yeah. You know this. I yeah. know this. And if the stress gets sustained or if it's so big, we go into freeze. So it becomes traumatic, right? And in organization, that doesn't typically result in us, you know, uh, uh, emptying our bowel and, and, you know, mm. and going into voodoo death. But it means that we disengage from the initiatives yeah, the that the, qu the quitting seat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, or people who are frustrated by the change initiatives and in organizations that haven't re resulted in anything, they just, they just glaze over. And this is what effectively what freezing means. And that happens automatically because their body has, has been disappointed too many times. Mm -hmm. But what's the strategy to get us to do what we're, what we're good at as human beings? We're good at social engagement. We're good at asking questions. We're good at soothing others. We're mm -hmm. good at helping others. And so in a fight or flight culture, and most organizations today are fight or flight cultures where we are constantly stressed, where we're constantly under pressure, we have to systematically change the rules of engagement of people. So we need to reward and make it normal and change the processes so that people can say, help, I don't know the answer. Because actually, as lots of Harvard Business Review research says, when I admit that I don't know the answer, there is a space that we can fill with possibility and learning. Mm. And when I admit, and especially if I'm in a leadership position, to saying I don't know the answer, somebody else might help me. And, and so systematically training teams to become good again at engaging with each other, caring for each other is the way to fight the fight or flight automatic body response. Yeah. And that's what social neurobiology actually has confirmed. With leadership, yeah. like you, you, you've introduced, you know, if, if I'm a leader and I don't know that you still create this space, but given the nature of mindfulness as a team sport, yeah. it's lonely at the top and there's mm -hmm. much literature and yeah, it's, it, it's absolutely true. And it can also be seen as a sign of weakness. And if weakness mm -hmm. gets out into the analyst that it goes to the street, it has this domino effect. Is the approach of creating this sort of a headspace in leadership similar? Does it need to be altered? Like, uh, the, d d does the application change through the hierarchy? Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good question. So, um, the, the, the research that I'm working on uh, in the armed forces has three different strands. And so we're talking about, um, training establishments that are training, uh, currently like, um, Royal Marine commandos. And that's pretty much at the, you know, at the, 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 not the foot soldier, but the, you know, very smart warrior of the future mm -hmm. kind of end of training large groups of people 
who have to get through training and it's very resilience provoking or not. And so this is more about people functioning in teams, people working together and the future of warfare, of course, is teamwork, just like the future of work is, is teamwork. So that's more about culture and process change. Then I'm working with senior Royal Navy officers who are uh, in the, they're calling, it's, it's effectively the C-suite of running the Royal Navy where mm -hmm. they're like, effectively middle manager communicating strategy and executing it. And that means engaging with people. So they have to be more of a leadership position. There's a bit more self-management that is a publicly visible self-management, more so than my Royal Marines training. So the shape of the training changes. And then I'm working with submarine commanding officers who are also interested in bringing mindfulness into that training. And there it's It's very much lonely at the top. Commanding a submarine, a nuclear submarine is a very tough endeavor where your decisions really matter, you know, from a minute to minute perspective. And so we're, there we're seeing that the mindfulness training has more of a leadership empowerment and self-management flavor than the kind of the, the more social flavor that we've put on top of the, the traditional mindfulness meditation, mindfulness contemplative flavor. But so the, The leadership flavor of that is more of an agenda setting and changing the strategy from command and control to mission command. And what does this mean, not just for me as a person and me working with my subordinate, but what does this mean for me in relation to the organization that I work in and with? And so what are the policies that I say are the right policies? Are the, the policies that promote measured calm responses to stresses and what are the policies that we have to eliminate when stresses happen so it's more of a policy setting agenda when i'm more of an, in a leadership position it's interesting as, as you went through particularly the leadership example it sounds like you know from an outside perspective if i was looking at someone who was demonstrating these capabilities it would sound like someone who is cool under pressure it's you know, mm -hmm. got it under control but understanding perfectly well that there's an awful lot that's happening beneath the surface yeah but th what you're getting to here in relation to this research is creating the space and giving framework and a structure to take things out and almost prioritize yeah. in your word the policies to go okay well how must i think how must i act because This is a very stressful moment, yeah. but I need a framework in which to operate. And that therefore allows me to be calm, to be mindful about very critical decisions that can affect organizations and, mm -hmm. and you know, a whole lot of people. We've also just done a survey of leaders in armed forces context, in policing context, and in emergency services context. And just like You know, I've used to work in normal business contexts, like you and I, that's where we've met. Mm. Um, but what these leaders are, are telling us, uh, is very similar to actually even how normal business is moving. The challenges are becoming more public. So my decisions are becoming more public. Um, there are more stakeholders that I have to satisfy. And that, these are additional stresses. You know, there's financial pressure everywhere. We have to do more with less. And, Because all of our decisions are scrutinized by the families, by the community that we're, that we're serving, either in, in a police or armed forces context or an emergency service context or even in a business context. Mm -hmm. Problems are becoming more complex. But this really good research, um, by 
professor at Southampton, Amy Freyer, who looked at bringing together, uh, watching how individual and collective mindfulness actually plays together. She observed a setting, a specific military setting. Mm -hmm. She found that what leaders have as quality is a quality of being comfortable with chaos. Now, the holy grail for you and me becomes, how the hell do I make this happen, right? How do I translate this into an intervention that can enable an individual and a team and a group to be comfortable with chaos? And it turns out it is at the interpersonal level. Even if I am a leader that has to remain cool because people are watching me when there's pressure happens, so I, I mustn't crumble when uh, there's an extreme challenge in the face of me, but I must also be able to be real and authentic to be engaging to those people that are around me. And I, I'm only comfortable with chaos if I am comfortable at an interpersonal relational level. And that means for leaders, and maybe your, your listeners like this or don't like this, um, it means they have to become more close and more um, authentic in the interface to the people around them. That means authenticity doesn't necessarily mean disclosing everything about their private life, but it means showing a bit more of who they are when they make decisions mm. so that in the moment of pressure, whenever they are, they are watched by other people who are checking how to respond, they have the relational buffer that they are held by the people who actually trust and respect them. So you only proactively build trust and respect by becoming more of an authentic, real, relatable person. Mm. And so everybody has to, and I'm, I'm showing you a little bit of my, you know, I'm lifting my, my, <laughs> my t-shirt a little bit. We're keeping it clean, we but, are. but we're showing a little mm. bit more of who we are. Yeah, yeah. And we and Adam, we're coming back to what we started with. This is about identity. Yeah. And mindfulness helps me become aware of who I am being with you mm -hmm. and how I want to be remembered by you, how I want to be seen by you. And what a very good way of becoming mindful is not for me to even rely on myself to notice in the moment of stress, but for you and me having to have practiced that whenever I start to lose it a little bit and go on autopilot, start to go into fight or flight moment, you lay your hand on my shoulder and you say, Yuta, you're going off the rails right now. And conversely, I do the same for you. And that is easier, we're finding. This is why mindfulness as a team spot is practically useful for business yeah. because it is very hard to develop the metacognitive ability to be mindful by myself. It is so much easier to watch when you are being less mindful uh, because I see you and I see you perform good or bad uh, or well or not so well. And it's much more difficult for me to see myself in the moment. In that self-critical. Yeah. Yeah. But I only, I only listen yeah. to your criticism when I feel safe. And when we've practiced giving each other constructive mm -hmm. feedback, so we only become comfortable with chaos when it matters, when we've invested time and energy to become comfortable with each other, even yeah. if I'm on top, if I'm your leader. So I have mm. to become comfortable with you slowing me down. Yeah. Imagine. 
Yeah. From a very practical perspective. So I'm a leader in the organization. I'm getting everyone in a room and I'm about to tell them of this amazing work that's going to increase trust and decrease stress and look what mindfulness as a team sport. You know, where does a leader, where does an organization, someone who's introducing work like this into, into the, into their, into their org even begin to start rolling this out without kind of getting the rolling eyes? So where we've started in the, the armed force context, where we've started to roll this out and build interest in trialing more of these interventions is we're starting from the business benefit and what business problem this is solving. This is nothing to do with mindfulness for the sake of mindfulness. The business problem is that we have, we have a situation where we need people to change the way they do things. So we have, whenever people in the teams that I'm working currently, whenever they get under pressure, they start to let the pressure out on each other. So they turn a problem into a, a relational issue. And we are losing efficiency. We're losing productivity because of that. So we're saying, how do we overcome that problem that people become less good when they're actually stressed. And if we build motivation for people to say, I want to be as good when I am under pressure as when I'm relaxed, then we can start to have a conversation of how do we actually get there? Mm. How do we change this, this gap of performance from when I'm under pressure, especially in a, in the workplace yeah. setting? The, the other thing that's really helpful is to remind people that today's problems are more complex and more unknowable than they were before. So we used to have risk logs and risk management procedures, mm -hmm. and we used to be able to calculate the probability in which, it, you know, uh, how likely was it that a certain problem or disaster would occur. But nowadays, because politics, uh, warfare, uh, and even the, the economy of finance is no longer, you know, rationally determinable. We have to change the way we manage difficulty in organizations. So we have to gather different types of data. And that data is about involving everybody in the organization. And we can't afford people to not speak up when they have an idea because it might be the right idea. Yeah. Because we no longer know how to solve today's problems. And to that we can't afford take. I would imagine that yeah. if you can teach people how to be, perform better under stress mm -hmm. or deal with stress less, that's going to have a massive effect economically. You have mm -hmm. less people taking stress leave, what yeah. that does to, to mental health, to physical health. Are there physical and mental health benefits that you've been able to get at or measure in, in some of your research? Because mm -hmm. obviously, like to your point, when it leads back to the individual and it comes back to the identity, there always is a degree of kind of you know, the desire to self-care. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, acting on it is, is, is quite difficult. But if you can show the upshot of this is good, not only for the organization, but also for the individual mm -hmm. personally, mm -hmm. you know, beyond the context of work, mm -hmm. you know, this can be very compelling. Mm -hmm. So we are just at the start of actually, you know, trying to measure all these things properly. But it's absolutely true that if you are, you know, if you were, you know, Context independent situation, mindfulness practice at the individual level, meditative or other, other ways to process the information in front of you differently mm -hmm. is helpful. And 
our data has shown that mindfulness practice increases resilience and increases cognitive capability independent of the context. Once you throw the context in, it becomes more complicated. And so, right? So because mm -hmm. the context drives actual performance under pressure much mm -hmm. more than individual skill and, and motivation. But we're finding that if we are, and in the military study, we found that if we've made that microculture change, We've measured people's individual resilience levels and their individual uh, cognitive capabilities. That also has increased, but it's probably facilitated by the social norm change that we promoted by saying we are managing stress collectively. So I'm my, the innovation that I'm basically putting on the table here is that leaders should consider mindfulness as something that's much more related to culture than individual headspace app uh, capability. Because the capability of meditating is, you learn this within five minutes, kids learn this within five minutes. The, the crux or the trick is for people to consistently practice what is good for them. And that gets determined by the culture. So the, you know, the, the, the skills training, the headspace app, is the least of the leader's problem in getting people to be mindful with themselves and with each other. Mm. But the relational stuff that happens when a whole team starts to get stressed, when a whole team, when a whole organization starts to feel overwhelmed about what's going on, that's where the money is really in mindfulness. Yeah. And how does one deal with, let's say you're going through that, transformation and you end up with a leadership change which is one of the most common things with anything that i see that's either dealing with talent development or cultural change or whatever it happens to be in walks a new leader and everyone is automatically tensing up and even if it's not pushed to the back as an organizational agenda individually it is it's like oh no mm -hmm. here we go like what are we going to get what's going to happen to my budget what's going to happen to all the work we've been doing for the last five years mm -hmm. Like is, is, have you seen a way to kind of pass the baton firmly to ensure that there is a commitment to this work? Because mm -hmm. you've said a number of times it needs to be sustained. It needs to mm -hmm. be repeated. You need to create that space and then make sure it doesn't get deprioritized when something hits the fan. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the work that I normally rely on in having those conversations with organizations, cause they, they ask exactly those questions. I go to another really brilliant Harvard psychologist. Uh, her name is Susan Davis. She talked about uh, this brilliant concept of emotional agility. And effectively, she's been a very clever uh, uh, scientist of repackaging uh, different schools of mindfulness and um, acceptance and commitment therapy. That is a flavor of mindfulness that I'm a big fan of by saying that the emotions that get shared in organizations are typically skewed. So that means that what gets expressed in organizations depends on what the culture rewards, what kind of emotions are rewarded in the organization and what emotions are frowned upon. So for example, uh, an emotion that gets rewarded in an organization is uh, pride, happiness. An emotion that normally doesn't get expressed very much is confusion, sadness, uh, and maybe even frustration is actually allowed in organization you know, or, or maybe uh, being indignant or disappointed in others. Those are emotions that are allowed, but emotions that are more about helplessness 
or uh, feeling lost, uh, they don't get expressed in organizations. And having even just the conversation about the skewedness of how we express emotions in organizations as well as in families, if you think about how parents deal with the emotional distress of their children, they often stop them from being sad about maybe not having achieved something. And the problem with that is that we then don't explore what's at the basis of it. So emotions are actually functional. Mm. So if I'm disappointed, I should go there. Because I then you, if I'm disappointed in you, you've violated something that you and I care about. Mm -hmm. And if I don't allow myself to express this, and again, this is where mindfulness is not necessarily nice. Yeah. But you and I need to really talk about and experience what is my disappointment about? And that conversation in answer to your questions, what can leaders mm. do mm. to, to make this, this culture shift? Like this is a big, you know, for me, it's like a big vessel, an organization. And if I want to change course, I have to do this really slowly. And so things can shift, things can become more authentic and things can change in the way people treat each other. And so talking about the emotions that are displayed, that are shared, that are uttered and how, isn't it interesting uh, that we are afraid that the word, you know, the word fear is so big in organizations that we're so afraid of saying when we don't know. Yeah. And what's the consequence of that for us? And isn't that interesting? Shall but, we go there? Yeah, but it's also the self-induced psychological yeah. take on what the consequence is is usually significantly worse than what the actual real consequence yeah. is. It's yeah. Like if I don't understand it, like, okay, well, let me help you. Yeah. As opposed to I don't understand, I might get the sack. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that I'd like to say is because we're doing this now in the, in the Royal Navy in, in particular, in, in all sorts of contexts, these interventions are much less scary and much less strange and much less different from what organizations do than people think. So these conversations trigger awareness, right? Mm -hmm. Mindfulness is a state of being aware mm -hmm. and then choosing to respond appropriately. So these conversations don't have to be six weeks training programs or organizational interventions, but they shift the focus in OD and training from a skills focus where the underlying assumption is that there's something wrong with that middle manager or that, that high potential in the organization. And I have to make him stronger, but they shift that to a, isn't it interesting how we all behave around here? And this metacognitive practice is the tool that opens up rigid structures. Mm. So it's a different flavor of OD and training. And it's a bit more, more almost self-critical and it's a bit less arrogant, dare I say, mm. than traditional training and intervention programs. And it's a bit more involving me. Yeah. Yeah. So if organizations do this, they almost naturally become nicer places to live and more with more authentic leaders because that awareness drives choice mm -hmm. and drives Within an instant, you don't have to meditate for two years to get these insights. And behavior change happens. Why? Because we're desperate, because we find out something, we have an insight that we didn't have before, or because somebody else tells us. And so those are the three factors that make this 
multi-layered cake of mindfulness, a strategic cake. Mm. Where do you see over the foreseeable future organizational psychology and particularly mindfulness, where do you see the research headed? Where do you see this arcs going? Mm, oh, a difficult question. Because I would like to say, and this is, you know, these are the lenses that I'm wearing, that social factors, contextual factors are going to become much more important. And we haven't studied them and we haven't advised organizations enough about them because it seems simpler to look at an individual, to look at a team and do something to them rather than look at the invisible social soup around people. But I think that's where the data is going and that's where the future of interventions is going to go. So Sandy Pendant's work, at MIT, Sandy Pendant, MIT, social network scholar, brilliantly has graphically illustrated that across teams, the teams that do well are the ones where people communicate symmetrically. What a brilliant insight, mm -hmm. right? And so he has, because he's a network scholar and he's at MIT, he has systematically over thousands of data sets debunked the myth that the IQ of the team member matters for team performance. Wow. The collective IQ level of all team members together combined matters. Or the IQ of the, t you know, of, of individual, whatever. I'm, I'm losing myself here because I'm too excited. <laughs> But he also has, has systematically debunked that team size matters, that, um, environmental complexity matters. But he reliably found that if people talk in a symmetric way, have social contact, have energetic communication, where there's no leader driving the agenda, then sustainable performance happens. Isn't that interesting? Wow. And how do you get there? This is my question. Mm. You get there by, by turning people into carers of each other. And, and I become your keeper. Like Obama, right? The yeah. only real president in the last, you know, decade mm. or so in the US. He said, I need to become my brother's keeper. And if I become my brother's keeper, all sorts of good things happen. And because he will become, he will become responsible for me. And then we can actually do good things. Mm, brilliant. So where is your now work headed? What's next for Utah? I'll, I'll need to do a lot more work on this. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get a lot more data on this. And I think I'm actually literally just at the cusp of being able to articulate this idea so that people understand it. Because for the last decade or so, mindfulness being equated and almost conflated with meditation has been so strong mm -hmm. and people either loved it or hated it that I'm now saying the next generation of mindfulness is a social flavor of mindfulness. But, and I'm certain that it's the right direction to go into, but I need a lot more, you know, evidence to make it valid and reliable. So I have mm. a lot more work to do. Building the case. And I have a, uh, I've had a <laughs> book deal for three years, but I didn't feel like I had enough data to actually populate this and not, and I don't want to write another book on mindfulness that is the same as all these hundred books that may or may not have made a difference. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to really make a difference in organizations. Nothing okay. wrong with making yeah. a difference. No. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant conversation. Finally, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you and learn more? People can reach me if they Google Center for Excellence in Mindfulness Research at City University. 
Brilliant. Okay. Nice and easy. Yuta Tobias Motlock, thank you so much for your time. This has been absolutely amazing. It's been absolutely equally amazing for me. Thank you so much, Adam. Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Adam Cox is a trusted strategic advisor to leaders, executives, and organizations across the globe. If you're interested in Adam's work or wish to sign up for his newsletter, go to adamcox.com. The strategy behind is an original podcast produced and engineered by Peter Morgan with music by Judson Lee. Our executive producer is Adam Cox. And to find more episodes, visit adamcox.com forward slash podcast. Thank you.